You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. From the author of the book by the same name, it's The Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast with Mark McRae. Oh, PowerCon, everybody. Your man, Mark McRae, and your friendly neighborhood, Dan Clink, were at PowerCon, September's 10th through the 13th. All things She-Ra and He-Man, we got a lot of really rad interviews. But first, let me introduce your Mark McRae. Hey, everybody. So good to be back in Atlanta. We had an awesome time at PowerCon. Oh, yeah. This was the second time I've been at PowerCon. I went in 2019, and obviously 2020 PowerCon was canceled because of the pandemic. So it was good to be back at PowerCon in 2021, along with Dan Klink and my son, Miles McRae. He came along as well for support. That's right. That's right. And real quick, uh, now, Miles learned to drive in Atlanta, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I want to I say, as someone from, from Los Angeles, Miles McRae is hereby dubbed an official Los Angelino because he... Mastered, he was, he was a, he was no joke on those freeways. He knew exactly what to do <laughs> and at what speed to do it at. Uh, oh ha- yeah. Having oh, him behind yeah. the wheel was, was a dream come true. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, uh, we got where we needed to get to quickly and efficiently. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> shout out Miles McRae. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. And so, uh, we got to the hotel, checked in, figured out where we were going to be selling our books and promoting the podcast. I met one of our vendor neighbors. When you do a convention, you are always sitting in between people. Yeah. And we met the awesome Vince Alvendia. And uh, Vince and I clicked right away. So during those moments where people are in a panel and there's not that much uh, foot traffic, Vince and I talked about cartoons and animation and He-Man. And uh, he is a awesome artist, everyone. And you should definitely visit his website, which is adropramen.studio. Yeah, and we'll have a link down down below there in the show notes, mm-hmm. everyone. Yeah, definitely check him out. Yeah, he was very cool to hang out with mm-hmm. this this convention, right. uh, as well as the four heavyweights of the Shira He Man Masters of the Universe universe. Uh, we had the pleasure of speaking with Michael Swanigan, Larry Houston, Tom T, and Robert Lamb. And I think today we are going to begin with our good friend Michael Swanigan. When I found out that Michael Swanigan was going to be at PowerCon, I got really excited. I have one of his books, which is the first Filmation book that he co-wrote with uh, Daryl McNeil. This book was out of print for a long time, Dan. Right, right. And when it came back into print, I scooped it up. Michael Swanigan is a heavy in the industry. I mean, he is a storyboard artist and an animator and an author and an animation historian. But wait. Let's just jump to the interview. Yeah, you know what? Let's do it. Yeah. I was really excited when I found that you were going to be here because, you know, that filmation book that you and uh, Daryl McNeil wrote, it was out of print for a while. Then it came back into print and I scooped it up and I'm like, this book is awesome. True. There was a lot of love doing that book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I could have done it without Mm Daryl. I mean, Daryl's memory was just fantastic. 
that's yeah. good. <laughs> so what made you want to get into the animation industry? Or, or what was the, did you have any influences? Oh yeah, I, I started in junior high school and I went to a uh, small workshop in South Central LA that was run by animators from the industry. Corny Cole, Dave Brain, they were animators for, for Warner Brothers. And I, and I latched on to Corny, Corny Cole, who was my mentor. Oh, okay. And he got me into my first animation gig, which was, I don't, for a lot of people who don't know, was Flip Wilson. Oh, okay. There was, there, there was the Flip Wilson special called Clero Wilson, and the class of PS14 or something. Was that the animated special? Yeah. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, that was the first thing Corny got me involved in, and I was hired as a character designer and background designer. Mm -hmm. I was still in junior high school. Right. Oh, wow. That is awesome, man. So, so that was my first gig. And from there, I got summer job. I got to work at Hanna-Barbera mm -hmm. on the uh, Scooby-Doo movies. Oh, they were Scooby called Scooby-Doo movies, but, you know, like... the guest stars. Yeah, like Sonny and Cher and, and right. Three Stooges and that show. So from there, I went on into filmation and other studios. Okay, awesome. That is, that is like, really great. Uh, so as an animator, and the fact that you worked at a lot of studios as well, what would you say was the advantages of animating in-house, like filmation would do, versus sending the animation overseas? Animation in-house, you had full control of what was going on. You could go from department to department just going next door or across the street and talking to the artists. If you had a scene like, say, filmation, you just go down the hallway and say, this is what I'm looking for, and talk to the animators. They go, oh yeah, I know what you want. Or if they had a question about your storyboard, they can come talk to you. Then you just send it overseas and go like, I hope it comes back looking good. I hope they understood what I'm asking for. Right, right, interesting. Did you know, um, well, while you were at Hanna-Barbera, did you work with Joe Ruby and Ken Spears? No. no I, I worked at their studio, but not with them personally at Hanna-Barbera. Oh, okay. I worked at Ruby and Spears later on shows like Mr. T and uh, Laser Tag and some of their shows. But I I'd never met them personally at Hanna-Barbera. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because Ken Spears, I had a correspondence with him for a while, and he would tell me like really funny stories about how Fred Silverman would only buy from Hanna-Barbera and Filmation because they were the hit makers. Um, so what type of advice would you give like upcoming animators today trying to break into the field? Draw, draw, and keep drawing. And I would, I would advise them, if they want to get into the industry, Go to conventions like this and look for artists who are in the industry and talk to them. You know, going to colleges and all those things is just a, if you're not good, you're not good. Right. <laughs> if, you, if, you go, if you're going to learn, you're going to learn from people who know the industry. Right, right. You know, I believe in attaching myself to artists like Corny and Dave Brain and artists like that to get me into the industry. Going to school to me is like a tremendous waste of money. You'll learn the skills, but you don't know the industry. Right. So my advice is draw, 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 go to conventions, show your art and work to the people who are in the street, and have them get you in. That is very cool. Uh, yeah, so this is like a bonus, and you don't have to answer or not. <laughs> All right, so here is the thing. All right, All right. like, so when Hanna-Barbera came on the scene, 
Disney had, there's a really infamous TV Guide interview where he's sort of complimenting Hanna-Barbera, but giving them, it's like a, it's almost like a backhanded compliment that, he's, that he was talking about the studio using, you know, it wasn't fully animated like a Disney feature. And then when Filmation came on the scene, Hanna-Barbera basically felt that they had a better product, but couldn't understand why Filmation was doing well in the ratings. So it seems like online, like I belong to Facebook groups that are ex-Hanna-Barbera employees, and they are just like still hating on Filmation. Whereas when you run into ex-Filmation employees, they talk about what, how great it was to work at Filmation and the type of work that they did in-house animating in the U.S. And they have nothing to say bad about Hanna-Barbera. And so I was just wondering, why is it that Hanna-Barbera feels like they needed to hate on Filmation? Do you think that it was, you know, it was definitely a competition thing. I feel like Filmation made Hanna-Barbera work harder um, because if Filmation wasn't there, Hanna-Barbera would have totally dominated. So I was just curious if you had any interesting takes on it. I know that Daryl McNeil worked at both studios and went back and forth and took well, this two-hour. <laughs> I've worked at both studios also. Right, right, exactly. So, but I look at it, it's more of a business. Mm -hmm. and, for, and of course, you're talking about the king of animation, which is Hannibal Bear for TV. Right. So of course, if another studio comes up, they're going to hate on it. It's right. competition, it's business. Right. But Filmation had hit shows because they had popular characters and popular stories. When Filmation opened up, they had Superman and the Archies. Right. So those were tremendous shows for them, which built their platform and built their history. Of course, Hanna-Barbera is going to say, ooh, you don't want to deal with them because we're the king. Right. And you don't want to go to the lower people. Right. So I can understand that, but it's, it's strictly business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are people who worked at Hanna-Barbera who started at Filmation. Right. And there are people <laughs> at Filmation that started at Hanna-Barbera. A lot of people at Filmation went to Disney. Right, right. Like Don Blue. Like Don Blue. Yeah. Okay, and there are people that worked at Hanna-Barbera, Filmation, that became producers and directors over at HB. So, you know, it's just, I just think it's just business and it's just competition. That's all. Okay, yeah. I don't think, I don't think it's anything, you know, there was anything any, personal. Anything personal. I just think it's just business. Right, right. You know, come on, if you had a big business and I came up and started doing what you were doing, you would go like, oh, he's terrible. You don't want him. <laughs> There's more shows for you. Right, right. Especially if, 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 if I come in and I've got a hit show on Saturday morning and your client goes, well, that looks pretty good over there. You're going to go, oh, they're not as good as us. Right, right, right. So you don't want to deal with that. Right. That's just, that's, just, that's just business. So, no, I don't think it's anything more than that. I, that's my opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was yeah. just curious. Yeah, that's, that's I, my opinion. I was opinion. just curious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really great answer. Hey, well, thank you very much for your time, Mr. Michael Swanigan. Where can we find you on the internet? Where can people give you their money beyond the con and check out your work and be a fan? Uh, not on the internet, but I teach college at uh, a local colleges out here in LA. Okay, cool. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much for your time, sir. Are you going to okay, be thank you. all weekend at Powell? Yes, I will. Okay, perfect. Dan and I were at the convention for two days, and after we interviewed Michael Swanigan, I decided to go back to his table and ask him a few more questions that I forgot to ask him about while we were interviewing him. And one of the questions that I wanted to know was who were the character designers at Filmation because it's not listed in the credits. And uh, he explained to me that the character designer was a gentleman named 
Herb Hazelton, who had designed a lot of the He-Man and She-Ra characters, but I had no idea he went back that far in terms of working with Filmation and their history. And uh, he said the other character designer was a person named Carol Lombard, not the classic movie Not, not the Carol Lombard. <laughs> right, but a, a character designer named Carol Lombard. Right. And he emphasized that these were the people who were doing most of the character designs early on through the 60s and, and, and definitely early 70s. Another question I wanted to know about how Hanna-Barbera got the rights for the Fantastic Four cartoon. Right. And this is something that Dan and I, we talk about Hanna-Barbera, I believe, in our Hanna-Barbera versus Hanna-Barbera podcast. And I have been asking all the animation experts I know, and everyone had all these theories about why Hanna-Barbera created the Fantastic Four animated series. Right. I guess that's not really the right question. The question is... Why didn't the company that Marvel had been working with, the animation company that Marvel had been working with, which was Grant Ray Lawrence, like, why didn't they do the Fantastic Four cartoon? I think that was the bigger question. Right, right. And and Michael revealed to us that Hanna-Barbera wisely bought the rights for the Fantastic Four cartoon before any other studios could scoop it up. Right. The Hanna-Barbera Fantastic Four cartoon is like one of my favorite because it has a tone and flavor that is so different than a lot of their other superhero or action productions. Right. So that was a, a mystery that also got cleared yeah, up. Yeah, mystery well. solved. Mystery yeah. solved. Hey, we did right. it, everybody. Did everybody mm-hmm. thank you, Mr. Swanigan? Right. The other thing that I thought was really cool that Michael Swanigan mentioned Corny Cole, who was a veteran animator that goes way back to the uh, Disney and Walt Disney days, and how he taught animation to African American and Hispanic high school students to hopefully help them get jobs in the industry, which uh, is a really cool story. This here that this veteran animator, Corny Cole. Not only did he help Mr. Swanigan, but he also reached out to the community and uh, tried to get people of color to get into the industry, which is a great way of paying it forward. Do you like podcasts? Then you're going to hate Thunder Talk. Tasteless subject matter. Mature humor. Contempt for our co-hosts. Unapologetic social views. Edgy music. And total irreverence for the nerd junk we love. Are all reasons why no one. No one. No one should listen to Thunder Talk. Find us on the ESO Network. And all podcasting platforms. Or don't. Whatever. Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO Network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. Larry Houston is a real pioneer in the animation business, having directed cartoons since the mid-1980s, which is a first for an African-American director. Right. I first heard about Larry Houston, who is a director, producer, animator, and storyteller from another animator 
named Swinton Scott. And the other thing I learned from Larry Houston was how to pronounce Will Minio's last name, because how it looks in print and how it's pronounced are completely different. I mean, you don't want to know how it was pronounced. No, you you eliminate like uh, two letters in the middle and then totally uh, mispronounce, or I suppose in a French way, pronounce the last letter at the end. Right. And so if you've ever listened to our Smurfs podcast, where there are lots of French names involved uh, with the production of the comic book and the series, you would definitely understand my pain when it comes to uh, <laughs> uh, French last names. Oh, you'll, yeah. Or, or, or even first names. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll also find the origins of Mark's motivation to learn French. <laughs> he, he's, uh, I wouldn't say he's quite fluent at this point. But uh, can certainly ask, you know, where's a nice place to eat? And, you know, what lovely weather we're having. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so um, in 2020, I told Swinton that I was planning to come to PowerCon. And that was before we knew that there was going to be a pandemic. And that it would be cool to talk to Swinton as well as Larry Houston and another animator who I spoke to over the phone while I was working at Cartoon Network years ago, a gentleman by the name of Ron Myrick, also known as uh, Emery Myrick. But I finally got to meet Larry and I was really excited to talk to him. So again, Dan, sometimes you just got to like, tell me to stop. Let's just let him hear it. Let's just let him hear it. Let's give the people what they want. Let's give them the interview. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. This is Mark McRae for the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast, and I have the pleasure of talking with the awesome Larry Houston. How you doing, Larry? I'm doing good. Thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. I was really excited when I found out that you were going to be at the PowerCon convention, and I was really looking forward to meeting you. So I wanted to know, how did you get into animation? How did it become an interest to you? How did you know that this was going to be your career? Well, I've always been a storyteller, and my actual my initial uh, what I wanted to be was actually working for Marvel Comics, but I was too poor to go to New York. So I had friends that were working at Disney and Warner Brothers, and they were telling me when I when I could get hired because it was seasonal back then, uh, like from January to September. And so I just kind of timed myself. I went to go interview with uh, Filmation. I got an interview. Uh, I, well, actually, I got a test, I, and I, I failed the test twice. Okay, oh. so I didn't, I get, didn't get the job for layout, but the super, but the guy in charge of the test saw that I, I knew how to tell a story because I had, in high school, I had drawn up my own comic book stories. Oh, cool! So he took me up to the storyboard supervisor, introduced me, he gave me a test. It didn't seem to be that hard. Brought it back the next day. What I didn't realize, it was a live script. Everybody's working on the same script. Oh. So he took my stuff, he put it in a show, uh-huh. and hired me the same day. Wow. And that's how I got into the industry. Oh, that is so great. That's a great <laughs> yes. story. That's yeah. a great story. Do you have any particular influences? Like, uh, for me, Josie and the Pussycats was very influential because right. of, I didn't expect Hanna-Barbera to make it an Archie comic franchise into, like, action comedy right you know so do you it was there a particular show or series that you can say that really inspired you to get into the show the the shows when i were young when i was younger the shows that inspired me a lot were johnny quest um 
and a lot of the Hannibal Bear shows back in the 60s, uh, Space Ghosts and Herculoids and all that kind of stuff. Um, visually, they were like compelling. It, was, it would make me wake up on Saturday mornings early just to see those shows. Um, so that was one interest. Um, I like, yeah, I grew up, I'm, I'm showing my age here, but I used to buy comic books in the 60s off of the spinner racks. Yeah. Okay? And um, it was fun to go there and get the books, read them, and everything. And I was, I, I would, for one, I had to go buy a dictionary because sometimes Stanley will use words like, what, what is this? I kept asking my mom about it and, until she bought me a dictionary. She said, here, you go find out. <laughs> But my influences over the years has been like a guy named Jack Kirby, mm -hmm. John Buscema, uh, Gil Kane, uh, to a degree uh, uh, Gene Colan. But for cinema, uh, there's a guy named Hayao Miyazaki who did a lot of anime stuff. Who brought it? It started coming over into an American about the, the, the early '80s, and uh, his work was really inspiring because he knew how to tell a story so clear that you didn't need subtitles. Right. And the stuff that I would buy were laser discs, you know, the size of Domino's pizzas? Yeah, I you remember <laughs> laser discs, yeah. You put those on, there's no subtitles. Oh. You just roll it, you just, whatever the language is, you, you, you listen. But the way he directed the films, 80% of the storytelling is there 20%, you know, is subtext. You got it. Listen, to, you need the translation. But 80% was there, and that was fascinating. That he was such a good storyteller. So I would watch his films: uh, Kaleosha's Castle, Totoro, Laputa, and a whole bunch of other ones. And I would study how he told a story so clearly that it translated to all the countries. And so I tried to incorporate that into my style. And so that's, that are the ones that influenced me to become uh, a director and a comic book artist. That is awesome. So uh, one of the things that I talk about in my book is how the X-Men series came along and just, just totally dominated. <laughs> yes. And uh, you were part of that team. Yes. So what was it like working on that series? It was a dream come true because I had always been trying to get the X-Men on the air ever since I got into animation. When I got the shot of working at Marvel Productions, every time they had a, sh uh, a, a show or whenever there was a chance to put the X-Men in the backgrounds or other characters, I always did that. Um, and the one, I, I, the one thing I did, well, my, I shouldn't say I did, but myself and the writers we did, we tried to write the X-Men instead of writing down the kids. We tried to write up the kids oh, okay. so that the kids, when they watched the shows, they would, they would initially see the laser beams and explosions. But as they got older and watched on reruns, they catch more of the adult subtext that's there. And it would be more meaningful for them uh, later on. And I think that's helped with the longevity of it on Disney Plus and everything. Because people can see more. We're writing more than what other people were doing at that time. Right. And you uh, also worked on Exo Squad. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was my supervising uh, director on X-Men was Will Minio. Right. And so after the year one of the X-Men, he left to create the show Exo Squad. 
So he was the executive producer on that series. And so he got that that off the ground, and he was working with um, the, the, the story editors from the X-Men, actually, were helping him to put together um, the Exo Squad. And, and they were, again, they were trying to elevate the writing above what Saturday morning would allow. I mean, we have restrictions. You can only go so far. But we try to push the envelope, so to speak. Yeah, I like, I really like Exo Squad. I talk about that in my book as well. It has a separate chapter of just how great that show was. Um, and there's an interview, like a very small interview in there with one of the creators from uh, the series. Um, Will Minio. Minio, right. Just telling me about season two. Right. So my book is sort of like it was done in real time it was originally a part of a newsletter written in 1990s okay and i would send it out to people in the industry anyone who touched any type of animation or comic books what advice would you give upcoming animators and artists about getting into the industry any like career advice i've been retired unfortunately for like the last four years so i'm not familiar with what's going currently but what I would say, what the advice I would give is that um, our industry is built on relationships and, uh, and referrals. And so in addition to getting better at your, whatever your art is, you need to develop relationships with people that are in the industry. And that's the most difficult thing to do because you're not in the industry and how do you become friends with them? And a lot of times you would go to uh, conventions like uh, like this one or some other ones and do meet and greets introduce yourself, talk to them and most importantly leave, a good imp- leave them with a good impression leave them with a card with your website or your phone number because a lot of people do the interviews and they walk away right. hoping that the guy, someone will remember no, you gotta give them a card and make the card distinctive so that it, it either has a you know, it's die cut or something that makes it stand out from the crowd um, in animation, you got to figure out what you want to do because it's animation is pretty much like um, like they make cars. Everybody does a certain specialty to make it. Right. Um, and with CG now, uh, if you look at the just watch the end credits of any one of these um, computer shows uh, from Pixar, you know shows like that. Right. Look at all the different categories. I mean, you got you got the textures, you got the the modeling, you got um, lighting, clock, there's like six or seven different categories for what people, what you can do in a show. Right. And you have to be able to pick one. What's your specialty? What do you like doing? Which one do you like? What part of the pipeline do you want to be a part of? Yeah. Um, and that's for the computer stuff. And you got You just gotta do do your due diligence and do your research so that you can be prepared. When, when you want to talk to someone, I can do this, I can do this, I know this software, I know that software. No, you just got to be prepared for it. And, but, yeah, relationships are, are super important. The, um, the, what I just spoke about earlier, because I went to Filmation and I failed my test twice, the fact that the supervisor of layout went to talk to the supervisor of storyboard he gave me an introduction it's almost gold you know but I have to prove myself he gave me a test I passed it he liked what I did but 
introduction, you know, not just in the situation I described, but introductions in the industry. When you do that, the, the person that you're being introduced to assume that you've been pre-screened. Like, okay, this guy says that he can do certain, you know, he, his competency is a certain level. So you, you got in the door, so now you got to prove yourself. You know, that kind of stuff. Right. That's good. You know, that's, that seems to be a, a theme, you know, talking to you and some of the other animators that have been at the convention that, you know, sometimes the job you go for isn't the one you get. Right. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you yeah. know, so that's really cool. Yeah. And for, like for me, I, I, you know, young and stupid, I, I did not have, I, I didn't do my due diligence ahead of time. I went to go get a job for layout, which I was poorly, I didn't have enough, uh, I didn't know anatomy strong enough to be in layout, but I had the skill sets to be a storyteller. So, you know. That works out. <laughs> that works out really great. Uh, you were the producer of the X-Men series. Uh, producer director. Producer director, right. Yeah. So, what a freaking coveted role <laughs> for such a high-profile series. I just think it's awesome. I, I like the title. Um, the thing is, is that I got the title, because, in, especially the year one, because except for very few executives, they thought it was going to crash and burn. Oh. So they don't mind giving you the title if, if, you're gonna, if it's going to die. Right. <laughs> if it's going to fail. If it's going to fail, they don't, oh they don't really God. care about that. Oh, that is so funny. But because... I try to put 200% of myself into the show to make it work. Uh, I feel valid. I feel very validated that um, all of my gut instincts about what makes a good show actually worked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it definitely worked. It, it decimated the competition. I was tracking the X Men series in real time, and so three episodes premiered in the fall of 1992. And then all the remaining episodes premiered the, you know, the year later um, in the, you know, in the new year. Right. Were there production issues? <laughs> Were there production issues? Oh, my God. We had stuff coming back looking like such crap. It was like, oh, we can't put this on the air. It was like terrible. And so, luckily, the, the woman in charge of everything, the network, Margaret Lash, yeah, told the overseas studio, you will get this right, you will do all the retakes, you will make this thing work. So they sent the whole shows back with them to reanimate, to redo. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow, because, you know, like, like I said, I was doing, you know, when Fox, Kids, when Fox Kids came along, I'm like, well, great, you know, so now there's a new network that's doing Saturday morning and they seem to be really serious about it and uh, so that came around at the right time yep. and I you know so I saw the first episode I saw the second episode I'm all excited right then I saw the first episode again yeah. and then the second <laughs> <laughs> yeah because we had nothing we had back. yeah and now what there's two things see prior to the uh, X-Men they Fox had a previous series called Peter Pan, which was a production disaster. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, you know, Hal Sutherland, when I was doing my newsletter originally, I called him, and he was like a, a consultant yes. on that series. Right. You know, making sure they didn't blur the lines with Disney. Yep. Uh, 
Well, the, well, one of the nice, one of the nice, one. Well, no, I was going to say one of the nice things about a consultant is that you can tell them what they're doing wrong, and that's it. They don't have to listen to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you still get paid. Right, 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 right. That's funny. But I interrupted your story about Peter Pan and the Pirates. Yeah, no, it, that was for Fox. That was a huge production disaster in terms of trying to get it on time, the quality of the of the the show. So. You know, when when this reared his head again on on the X Men, my Margaret Lesh, who really believed in the X Men, told him they're going to redo everything, which they had to go back and do. Now the the delay all the way into January. What this is all by not by design. This is by accident. But by the time we debuted with new episodes one, two, three, you know, four, right. so forth. Um, all the other shows were in rerun. They had all done their 13 episodes. Oh, so it was like it was like all of a sudden now. This is the only show with new episodes. Wow. So all the eyeballs went to the X-Men. They didn't go to, you know, if yeah. they go to the other shows, it's like it's a rerun. I saw this before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. And, 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 you know, you definitely benefited because, really, for Saturday morning, they didn't really do mid-season replacements. You know, oh, it, didn't, no. it didn't happen a lot. <laughs> You know, and so here is a brand new spanking show with new episodes in the new year, and nobody else got anything new. No, but no. All the shows traditionally always came out in September, right. just before you went back to school. Right, I remember. And, and so our show was supposed to come out in September, but then it didn't come out to October. And then the other show, all the episodes, all of them was, were messed up. So then that's why it got kept being pushed Push way, back. way back. Now it costs it costs Fox money because they have ga- they had guarantees oh, right. of of Advertising. commercial advertisements, yeah, that they had to pay him back or delay it or do whatever financial maneuvers they had to do because they were gonna push it back into January. Right. This is Mark McCrae. I would like to thank our very special guest, Larry Houston, for stopping by to talk to the best Saturdays of our lives podcast. And again, huge fan. You're such a huge talent in the industry and so versatile and everything that you do. I just think it's, it's awesome. Oh, well, thank, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it. The, uh, what, I, what I do appreciate is, the, is when I get talked to uh, fans of, of the shows I've worked on and when they tell me that I inspired them to do something similar and, and get into art or, or or whatever that really makes me feel good that ma- that makes me feel like I did accomplish something because I've always wanted to always pay it forward so because I remember what it's like not not to be where I am now right yeah yeah I, I believe in paying it forward also you know because someone helped me yeah. when I want needed help getting in and uh, you know it's always great to give back so yeah. that's yeah, because whenever like I go to charities or when I go to these conventions like this, if they have, if someone has a question, I'll I'll pour out every ounce of knowledge I have. I'll give them to a, to them, just so they can have they can be prepared with what I've experienced, so that they can take it the next step. Right. You know. And be ready. And be ready, which I I never was. I mean, everything I learned was like trial and error yeah. to get where I'm at. Yeah. Sometimes it's like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, where can people find you? Uh, what is your website address, or how can people get in contact with you? To okay, um, 
I have my I have a website called Larry Houston.com. I am called the let's see if I can remember right X-Men director on Twitter and on Instagram I think I'm Larry Tunes 54 those are the three places you can find me oh okay awesome and uh, again thanks so much for talking to us we would definitely like to talk to you again okay very soon <laughs> thank you alright cool care. So yeah, Dan, I think one of the coolest things that I saw at the convention, and this is something I did not share with Larry, he was on a break on Sunday and he (laughs) was walking around and he was taking pictures of all the cool He-Man and She-Ra cosplayers. Oh yeah, he was just as much of a fan as we were. Uh, It was amazing to see somebody who's so key to the creation of She-Ra and He-Man and then being there as a fan himself, taking photos of all the cosplayers. And then a couple of the pro cosplayers, I think they may have been there with the convention actually attached to the convention itself. Right. They asked him to get into the photo because people were taking pictures of these super pro cosplayers and Larry was thrilled and he was taking pictures of them. And then they said, no, Mr. Houston, you need to come get in the picture with us. And then people started crowding around taking pictures with Larry Houston in the middle. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was, cool. it was so cool. Yeah. It was one of those, those yeah, really right. magic moments that happened at the convention that yeah. makes PowerCon one of the best conventions on the planet. Hello. Have you ever wondered how much Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster sold Superman's rights to DC for? Or which uh, popular football star was Sam Wilson the Falcon's physical appearance based on? You can find all that and more at the History of Comic Books podcast, a podcast dedicated to the creators, events, history, and the companies that made the great comic book medium. Hosted and created by your friendly neighborhood, J.T. Wheatley. Please give it a listen at iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, and all our podcasting platforms. Thank you, and go ahead and enjoy yourself a good comic book. Hey, Joe. Hey, Tony. Do you like ads about podcasts? You know it. How about ads about Doctor Who podcasts? Even better. Well, you're in luck, because this is an ad about a Doctor Who podcast. Wow, I love it. And you'll love us, the Watchathon of Rassilon, a podcast about Doctor Who. I'll buy 12. Actually, it's free. I'll buy 13, then. Michael Swanigan and Larry Houston. Uh, all of the talents, eight uh, tables were swamped for the vast majority of this convention. And it was so cool just having them all there. Wouldn't you say, Mark? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To me, that's what made the con. I mean, at the end of the day, PowerCon is a He-Man and She-Ra convention, but the people that worked on the animated series of those classic cartoons, they are definitely part of the history. And fans were really happy to see all of these wonderful and talented animators all in the same place. Uh, now, Mark, I believe you uh, spent a bit more time with Michael Swanigan. You picked up a book. Right, right. So I picked up uh, Michael Swanigan's Hanna-Barbera book, which has an awesome cover. It features the Hanna-Barbera, DC, and Marvel Universe all on one cover because that was the world of Hanna-Barbera. I started reading the book immediately and started finding out even more inside information about Hanna-Barbera cartoons that I did not know and uh, I'm so glad that I own that book now. And uh, 
Believe me, by the time I'm through reading it, whatever cool topics I'm able to pick out of it will be part of a future podcast episode. I am also actually thinking about going back and buying another book from Mr. Swanigan as well. We'll we'll figure it out. But uh, yeah, it's been a great read and I have not been able to put the book down. Yeah, no, we'll have to let the Powder Springs Library know that they're about to get an entire Tom Swanigan aisle to add to their Dewey Decimal System. One of the other things I'd like to mention about Larry uh, Houston, uh, he was one of the first, along with Ron Myrick, one of the first African-American animation directors in the business uh, going as far back as 1989. So that's quite an accomplishment as well. And so you have to understand why I wanted to talk to these gentlemen. They're both trailblazers. Michael Swanigan and Larry Houston, and uh, it was my pleasure to talk to such legendary animators. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a real, real treasure. So join us next time uh, as we continue our coverage from PowerCon, where we'll be interviewing Robert Lamb right. here on the best Saturdays of our lives. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a co-production of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives studios and the Weirdos Workshop. To get a personalized signed copy of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives book, go to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com. This is Mark McRae signing off. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.